Welcome to another edition of the Hidden Layers podcast. Hidden Layers is a place where the newest thinking in AI collides with the newest thinking in the marketing world. I'm your host, Jeremy Fain. For our last episode of the year, we're excited to be interviewing the interviewer again. Earlier this year, we interviewed Zach Rogers, executive editor of the digital marketing industry news outlet at Exchanger. We got a lot of good insight from him about what was going on in the digital marketing space and how AI was starting to collide with that. For today's episode and for the last episode of the year, we thought we'd go straight to the source of hardcore AI coverage, Karen Howe from the MIT Technology Review. She's the artificial intelligence reporter, and her beat includes the ethics and social impact of AI, as well as its applications for social good. She also writes the AI newsletter, The Algorithm, which thoughtfully examines the field's latest news and research. Prior to joining the publication, she was a reporter and data scientist at Quartz and an application engineer at the first startup to spin out of Google X. Welcome, Karen, to Hidden Layers. Thank you so much for having me. So let's let's jump into some questions. Overall, your editorial pieces cover both the positive and negative implications of AI in various scenarios. But in general, we're going to jump into a few scenarios in a minute, but in general, I was thinking, do you think that the positives that we're seeing from AI are outweighing the potential negatives in the future? You know, is AI really going to be a net positive for society? That's a great question. I think it's kind of hard to predict because it really ultimately, the future of how AI impacts society rests in the hands of the people that are creating and implementing it. So if people who are developing and implementing the technology have the awareness to really make sure that they are approaching it in a way that will enhance the benefits but mitigate the harmful effects, then absolutely, I think AI could have a very positive effect on society that outweighs some of the costs that it will also inevitably have. And I think one of the best ways to actually have these developers and other technologists do that is to really have interdisciplinary teams that are thinking about ways that AI can go wrong or benefit people with a lot of diverse perspectives. So it ultimately is up to the people that are currently uh, wielding that technology. So that takes me to my next question. You've done a bunch of articles recently about the fairness of AI, AI and in- improving fairness, in fact, in places like lending or sentencing. This is a topic we talked about over the last few years, especially in the lending area. But I'd like to hear from you. You know, it seems... As a scientist, it seems far easier to come up with an unbiased training set than people seem to worry about. People seem to be very worried about increasing bias in things like lending, using AI, or reinforcing it. You know, what, what do you think? Do you think AI can really bring fairness like the scientists think it should and could? That's a really tough question because it is it is very challenging to find unbiased data sets. And the reason why that is, is because AI needs a lot of data in order to actually start um, having some of the predictive power and um, other capabilities that um, you would want it to have. And in order to find enough data to actually train some of these systems, you end up having to you end up having to find data in weird places, essentially. 
And for example, here's an example, like if you're training a natural language model, so if, you're, if you want to build a chatbot, um, that chatbot needs to learn the English language by just being fed tons and tons of sentences of English so that it can start to recognize patterns between when different words appear next to others, when to use punctuation, all of the things that you naturally learn when you're in English class in school. In order to get enough examples of English sentences, you basically have to scrape the internet for lots of English sentences. And some of the most powerful um, AI models that are really good at this, they were essentially fed things like Reddit forums, blogs, um, news articles. And inherently, as a society, because our society is biased um, and we produce sentences that naturally end up having those embedded biases. So in a chatbot example, these language models, they correlate a nurse with a woman and a doctor with a man. And so if you are using Google Translate, which also is based off this technology, if you type in she is a doctor, he is a nurse, translate it into a gender neutral language like Hungarian and then translate it back all of a sudden it's become he is a doctor, she is a nurse. And so this is a challenging problem because the, these are the data sources that we have to work with. There aren't exactly easy ways to find unbiased data elsewhere, but it's not impossible to be able to collect that data um, and clean it in a way that could potentially de-bias it. And that's an ongoing um, research question. Yeah, that's what I would think. I would think that cleaning the data is important, right? I mean, we've had, let's assume that we have a biased human decisioning process in lending or sentencing. Let's, you know, and in lending, we have lots of data. We have not as much data on, let's say, you know, in one, in one of your articles, you're talking about gender bias, men versus women and credit and all those things. But we have enough data that shows that women uh, what women can be successful at credit worthiness as just as we have a lot of data on which men we have uh, that that can be successful at credit worthiness and instead of having it 75 25 which may be the reality of of the gender credit distribution we could make it 25 a 50 50 and have it have a less biased algorithm isn't that you know that seems easier than than continuing to continuing to rely on human bias. I, I, I don't know if I would I would use the word easier. Um, actually, debiasing algorithms is a, is a is a really really hard research problem right now. And in the example that you gave with lending, there it's it also involves a lot of legal implications as well because a lot of the cutting edge research in how to debias algorithms. Um, has found that when you want to debias an algorithm based on gender, for example, and make sure that it doesn't discriminate against women, you actually want to introduce, you want to know your client's gender, which is very counterintuitive. Traditionally, you would think that if you do not want to be, uh, if you don't want to have sexist outcomes, you just make decisions that are gender blind, like you, you never even reveal what your customer's gender is. But actually, in research, they've found that um, you need to know the gender in order to then develop checks post hoc once you've trained the model to figure out whether or not the model is actually biased on this particular characteristic. And that is currently illegal um, in the U.S. You, can't, you cannot consider gender when you're developing these models. It's actually 
there's there's just a lot of challenges in developing these fair algorithms. But to your question of whether or not it's better to be working on fair algorithms versus just giving up on algorithms altogether and going back to humans, I do think that there is a lot of potential for algorithms once they are fair to be much better at making these decisions than humans. The transition from human decision-making to algorithmic decision-making is not as flawless as um, some people make it out to be. So getting back to the original idea of AI in the hands depends on who's creating it. You know, science fiction forever from an artificial intelligence perspective has assumed most of the time that AI will either evolve or, because I know this may be a little science fiction-y, but comes back to all of these these ideas and a lot of the articles that you that you write about the fairness question are people are very worried about this because they don't trust the technology they don't trust AI because they don't trust humans basically in a lot of ways and and they think that AI is basically an extension of humans but you know historically science science fictiony but even now as science fiction is becoming reality we we find a very very concerned critics uh, and uh, of of AI and what it can do if put in the wrong hands or developed for the wrong cases. Are you do, are you an optimist though on this side of things, or do you are you more of a pessimist? You think like the critics of uh, of these things like having AI take over sentencing, having AI take over lending, et cetera, et cetera. So what's interesting, um, I, I guess there's there's a couple points I want to address there. The first one is that we, the, what we have currently as AI is very, very far away from science fiction. So sometimes I, what I like to say is that I think one of the greatest marketing victories was calling artificial intelligence artificial intelligence because it kind of made fancy, like fundamentally now what we have is fancy. Statistics, um, and by branding it as AI, um, it has become it's taken on. People have in their public imagination has, uh, this fancy set of set of statistical techniques have n- have now taken on so much more meaning than what they should, uh, or people people attribute so much more to them than they should. That's point number one. The second point is that actually there's a lot of really interesting research that shows that people actually trust algorithms a lot more than humans. They forget that humans make the algorithms. So an example that you brought up with AI being used in the criminal justice system, one of the reasons why that adoption has happened so quickly is because people trust the algorithm a lot more than a human judge. And they, they for some reason, believe that the algorithm is sort of independent of human bias, um, even though fundamentally it is still the human that is making the algorithm. So in terms of why I sometimes am worried about the rapid adoption of AI and across different domains, it's not necessarily that I think that AI is fundamentally good or bad. Again, I think its its impact is going to be decided by the people that develop it and apply it. But what I worry is that it makes it very difficult for people to scrutinize what is actually happening. So in a very sensitive context, like the criminal justice system, if you have an algorithm making decisions in that space, 
traditionally, um, it's a lot easier for the public and other for lawyers and for other people, defendants involved to um, interface with a human judge making making decisions and be able to challenge those decisions, have more transparency into those decisions. Whereas when an algorithm is making it, people often feel powerless against scrutinizing what it's actually doing because they don't understand the technology. They feel um, that they don't have the technical know-how to to be able to even learn um, about the technology. And so that's mainly what I worry about. And I am a bit of a pessimist, I suppose you could say, in that I think that people sometimes become they start to feel powerless about how AI affects their lives because they don't think they have um, enough know-how to actually understand it or challenge it if they don't like the algorithm's decisions. But I do feel optimistic that we are capable as a society of developing and applying AI in ways that could be very, very beneficial. So let's talk about, let's, let's switch topics or, or let's go positive now and uh, talk about some of the use cases you're seeing that, that uh, in terms of using technology and AI for social good. What have you seen uh, recently that you think is, is really promising? That's a great question. I've been spending so much time covering wrongdoings that I need to, (laughs) it's always good to remember positive positive impacts. Um, One of the things that's really cool is AI is really good at optimizing things um, because fundamentally it is is, um, just more powerful methods of computation. So one of the trends right now is optimization in energy efficiency. So if you allow an AI algorithm to figure out, uh, to to gather in all of these um, data inputs for um, how different buildings are using energy, how how different floors within a building are using energy, or how different buildings within a city are using energy, um, it's it can very efficiently figure out how to optimize um, utilities or energy consumption so that um, energy efficiency improves across either the building or across um, a neighborhood or something like that. Um, so that's that's a really cool application. And Google actually a while back deployed some of their own AI algorithms to reduce their um, energy consumption of the energy consumption of their data centers by around 40%, which is pretty dramatic. Another really cool way that AI has been optimizing things is in agriculture. So agriculture is also kind of a resource intensive thing. You need a lot of water, you need potentially electricity, um, other things like that. And um, there's like a great movement now um, at the intersection of agriculture and technology where people are using sensors to measure the different environmental conditions of their crops and then be able to really um, use AI to, to fine tune how exactly how much water they should be using, exactly how much fertilizer they should be using um, to maximize the production of their fields. And um, that also ends up reducing a lot of the resource consumption because you are much more targeted and much more um, specific with how much how much you water your crops, essentially. So yeah, those are two two of the big ones off the top of my head that have been, become more and more common. Do you see the United States leading in AI, or are there other countries that are putting a lot of resources in into this space? 
The U.S. is certainly leading in AI because um, I, the field was ultimately started in the U.S., so it has a really big head start in in the space. And we, the U.S. also has a great advantage of being home to many, many amazing universities and um, amazing companies that all have impressive research labs. So um, we have a lot of incredible homegrown AI research talent here, and also we attract a lot of AI research talent from abroad. That said, that there are many other countries that obviously have identified AI as a very important area for investment. The EU has done that, the UK has done that, um, and China is the biggest um, investor or the, the most vocal investor in um, AI, and they've developed a national strategy around AI. So there is a lot of lot of attention right now globally on uh, making sure that this technology is developed and deployed in many, many ways. And what do you think, our listeners are most interested in the marketing implications of AI. You know, you've written about Amazon using AI to recommend clothing to people. You know, what's your current, what's your take on the current state of AI for uh, marketing? Have you, have you done much coverage um, in that using, you know, consumer data to predict the future, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have not done a lot of coverage on AI and marketing, but I am familiar with the, the ways that AI could be used for marketers or beneficial to marketers. Fundamentally, the technology, it is, it is about crunching a lot of data to make predictions. Um, and, and marketing, in marketing, there are many different tasks that you might do in the marketing pipeline to that could leverage that ability. One of the most obvious ones is to understand consumer um, shopping behavior so that you can better target your advertisements towards them because you're essentially trying to predict what purchases they might be interested in making next. Another big one, less for the consumer, but more for the actual companies is if they're trying to figure out how to optimize their marketing budget overall, they could use AI to help them figure out and predict what the demand might be across different types of products or brands and then budget um, accordingly. Um, one of the, I guess one of the cautions that I have with AI and marketing is uh, particularly with the advertising aspect, when you are using AI to try and better target consumers with advertisements, algorithms are ultimately they, I guess, how do I say this? Like, there can be a bit of a unintentional, there could be neg unintentional negative consequences that happen, where um, with Facebook, for example, when they provided this advertising platform to micro-target a lot of Facebook users, what ultimately happened is the algorithm started to discriminate in showing different people, different types of um, housing or employment opportunities. Um, so there was a study done showing that the algorithm, because they were optimizing for engagement and for profit, ultimately ended up discovering that they should show secretary ads to women more than men and um, engineering ads more to men than women. So when deploying algorithms in these kinds of settings, it's always good to ask yourself what kinds of, just try to play out in your mind what might happen, what what might the algorithm learn. and is the outcome ultimately in alignment with your company's values? 
So those are interesting cases, cases that we ask ourselves a lot, especially when we're doing advertising for, let's say, a credit card and credit card company, because uh, like like we talked about earlier in lending, you're not allowed to use a lot of demographic traits or geography, et cetera, to make approvals from the beginning, but also now to advertise. And the interesting thing about that for us uh, in the space is that the data sets for a credit card are generally biased towards a demographic of that credit card because there's so many credit cards now that some credit cards are for travelers. Generally, those are business travelers, which means that they make a lot more money and they're a certain demographic and things and they live more in these cities and things like that, these geographies. So the data ends up being, like we were talking about earlier, biased towards who's actually applying for these cards, but from the advertiser's perspective, they're not allowed to use even proxies for that data as a big gray area. So like, what do you think about that? I mean, this is the argument we get a lot from the marketers themselves is that they aren't using any of these proscribed uh, things. It's just who's actually coming to apply for these cards. That's what the data they're using to, to then go and try to buy to be more effective with their dollars. They don't want to waste dollars on people who are not going to apply for the, or, or apply or use their card. But a lot of the time that is because they're demographically targeted to a certain, certain type of person. And the lending article that you wrote was sort of saying that the law may or may not be uh, in need of an update. So what do you think about that from a marketing perspective? Because yeah, advertising totally. dollars are getting wasted. Totally. I think it depends on how you want to think about it. So one thing that I tell people how, how I, I explain in, in how to think about the way that algorithms perpetuate discrimination is it's not it's not intentional. Obviously, they're just learning from historical data. But um, historically, there might be reasons why certain people are systemically barred from accessing something over others. And if that's the, those are the only types of examples that the algorithms are seeing, then they will naturally assume that the people that are engaging better with their, with a certain advertisement, for example, are the only people that should be seeing the advertisement in the first place. The problem is that you don't necessarily always want, if there were historical reasons and systemic reasons why a particular group was barred from doing something, you don't want to perpetuate that systemic barrier into the future. So perhaps historically there were, have been less women in engineering professions than men. That doesn't necessarily mean in the future you should no longer show job advertisements for engineering positions to women because it ends up um, perpetuating a barrier that might no longer exist that led to that discrepancy in the first place. Um, another example yeah. is if you have housing and in the same study that showed the, the differential treatment of job ads for men versus women, it also showed that algorithms have learned to, to show houses for sale to more um, white users and houses for rent to more minority users. And again, like that might have been true in the past because of the systemic barriers that minority residents faced in being able to own a home. But that doesn't mean that in the future, we just should not give minority users an opportunity to buy a home. So if, from a marketing perspective, the, 
I guess the best advice that I can give to marketers and advertisers that are grappling with these issues is just what are your company's core values? And yes, you might not be using your advertising dollars as efficiently as the algorithm might be telling you to, or maybe not algorithm, but it, as, as efficient as the historical data that you've collected might be telling you to, but you should ask what were the systemic barriers that could have potentially produced this kind of data and does it align with your company's values to actually perpetuate that the patterns in the data that were placed there from those systemic barriers. Great. So for this year, we're coming to the end of 2019. What, besides the stuff that we've been talking about, what has really been interesting to you from a trend perspective, seeing what's what's where AI has been moving in the last year in 2019? I think the most interesting thing for from a consumer perspective is how much AI is starting to be used in ways across different aspects of people's lives. I, I think, I mean, that, that's been true of every every year AI gets becomes introduced in more and more ways. But I think people in the public are starting to understand that finally. And I am excited excited about that because I think from a business perspective, more businesses are starting to get AI know-how and starting to incorporate AI in ways to improve their businesses. And from a consumer perspective, more consumers are interested and learning about the ways that AI is potentially improving or having consequences on their lives. And um, ultimately, that generates more national awareness about how to develop this technology in a positive way. Um, it brings more funding into the development of the technology and more research and attention to it. So I think we're kind of reaching like a sweet spot in how much excitement and attention there is in general on AI. And where do you see AI having the biggest impact in the coming year in 2020? What do you think is going to come online that's going to uh, change or improve our lives? That's a hard question because it's hard. It's hard because it's not exactly a step function. Like it's not like there are new industries that will suddenly start adopting AI or AI will be suddenly used in a completely new way um, that hasn't already existed before. I think a lot of the field and the industry um, is very incremental progress. So many of the things that we're seeing this year are just going to continue and strengthen next year. So the uptake of AI in more marketing tools, the uptake of AI in agriculture, the uptake of AI in energy efficiency, like all of those things will continue. I think in the research world, um, there are definitely big themes for next year, like causality, which is the idea that right now AI is really, really good at understanding correlations in data, but it can't explain to you why something happened. And this is a very hot topic in research now that I think will become hotter in 2020 with, can we actually develop algorithms that can explain to us why things happened? Because that, that would be really powerful. But in the, in the consumer facing world, I think a lot of what we've seen this year or just starting starting to see is just going to scale um, across more companies. And what, what about self-driving cars? When are we going to have self-driving cars? 
<laughs> I'm, I'm pretty cynical about self-driving cars because it's ultimately not just a technology problem. It's also a regulatory problem. And um, when it involves <laughs> that many elements, it can take quite a long time. So I'm, I'm not waiting around for my self-driving car. Oh, that's too bad. I do not like driving. I want a car to drive me anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready for that. I'm ready for it. And, and and do you think that so a, a number of your articles recently have also been talking a lot about the computers teaching themselves how to do things in the reinforcement in the reinforcement learning arena, both in in sort of the software side, but also you know playing games and things like that, but also in robotics hands learning how to hold things robotic hands I mean, etc. Are you seeing a lot of effort being placed now in that area instead of supervised learning where they're learning off of historical data? Um, what, what are you seeing there? Yeah, reinforcement learning is an interesting, interesting subfield in that reinforcement learning is based off of this idea of how we train animals. So if you think of Pavlov's dog, um, like Pavlov got his dog to salivate when the bell rang because he always gave him positive reinforcement, aka food. And um, reinforcement learning is essentially that concept for algorithms. So when you are training an algorithm using a reinforcement learning technique, it will re basically, um, let's say you're trying to teach it to play a video game, it'll basically like randomly bash around in this video game until it does something that you think it should keep doing and you give it a point and that's positive reinforcement or it'll do something that like you think is totally bad and you take away a point and over like millions and millions of sometimes even billions of um, trial and error rounds it will start to realize oh when I do these things it actually helps me win the game when I just when I avoid these things it also helps me win the game and so it's not like supervised learning and the way that you said, like it doesn't train on historical examples because it's actually training, it's generating its own examples in real time and then training on those. And that is like a very, very big field that really exploded ever since um, Alphabet's DeepMind was able to create an algorithm AlphaGo that beat the world's best human Go player. How that trickles into consumer applications is, Still not quite clear because reinforcement learning fundamentally, the way you train it is by doing lots of trial and error. And when you're working in a physical environment, you can't exactly have like a robot or something bashing around trying to figure out how to move. That just you'll either hurt someone or hurt the robot. So there have been some instances of reinforcement learning being attempted on self-driving cars where they will essentially train the algorithm in simulation first and the like digital self-driving car will bash around in a digital environment until it figures out how to drive straight on a road and then they import it into the self-driving car um, but this is still very very early stages and um, I I'm not aware that um, we've currently been able to figure out uh, we've currently been able to guarantee the safety of this kind of technique. Yeah, they're using it, seems like they're using it a lot for what seems to be military applications, you know, controlling drones and things like that in a way that will, will make them more effective in combat situations. 
Yeah, that that makes sense. It would sort of be similar that they would probably be training it on simulation in simulation first, and then importing it into a drone. And I imagine that the DoD is probably doing a lot of testing right now to make sure that the algorithms actually behave and the drone actually behaves in the way that they desire. Right. So, what what stories are you most interested in covering these days? Uh, what what gets you out of bed in the morning? These days, I'm really interested in the way that AI is being used in education because education is such a huge topic that obviously affects kids and kids are some of the most important um, <laughs> quote unquote resources that we have as humanity. Um, so I'm really interested in, in the way that AI is being used to, again, both in harmful, potentially harmful or potentially beneficial ways affecting the way that kids are educated. I'm also really interested in the way that kids are learning about AI, um, because I think that they have a, an incredible capacity to understand how algorithms shape their lives and um, have more agency in figuring out how they should be using algorithms in their lives. So that is an area that I'm excited to dig into more. Great, great. To finish up here, what's next for you? What are you, uh, what, what's next for Karen Howe? I think you will have to subscribe to my newsletter, The Algorithm, to get the answer to that. <laughs> That's great. And where where can they do that? They can uh, they just Google the algorithm. Yeah, if you Google That'll MIT Technology you. Review, the algorithm, um, it'll be there. You can also follow me on Twitter at underscore Karen Howe, um, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on both those platforms, and I'm constantly posting my articles and other interesting articles I read as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us here on Hidden Layers. And that wraps up our last episode of the year of 2019. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you in 2020. Thank you so much for having me.